Welcome to The Double MacGuffin, a podcast where two old friends, one a musician-composer-filmmaker, the other a filmmaker-writer-professor, chew over two movies with a vague connection. The MacGuffin, a term popularized by Alfred Hitchcock, refers to the object of the desire that gives a plot energy, like the Maltese Falcon or the Lost Ark. Sometimes, it's just a flimsy excuse for a story. Every episode, we each pick a favorite film with a common element and look at them both together. Whether it ends up being an object of desire or a flimsy excuse, we talk about it for an hour. Okay, Jonathan, I am so happy that we got to talk about these two movies this week. We always start with a prompt of some particular theme. Either we have one movie, we have to pick a double feature with it, or something. And I thought, I had some ideas, but I said, hey, why don't we um, each pick a movie about a visual artist? Um, And so that takes out films about writers and films about musicians. Maybe we could have shoehorned them in, but we didn't. And um, I don't think we even came up with the rule that it had to be a real person, like it could have been a fictional story, but we both went for uh, biographical films, which are sometimes called biopics, and sometimes people call them biopics, which I don't care for that pronunciation. But um, why don't, which one did you pick, first of all? I picked the Peter Greenaway Night Watching movie. All right, good. And I picked a film by uh, Ken Russell called Savage Messiah about, uh, the sculptor Henri Godier Breschka. Yeah, uh, we'll talk it's about films a bit. So um, it's about Rembrandt. So in case people missed that. Yeah, yeah. So um, first of all, why did you pick the one you picked? Um, there was a few reasons in a row. One is I thought that we needed to get some coverage for Peter Greenaway there. The other one was once you pulled out Ken Russell, I thought it was a good pairing anyway because they're both English and both you know loaded with kind of eccentricity in their movies uh and uh and the other reason is i thought it was uh i don't like a lot of biopics biopics actually especially if they're about living people but um i I think people need to get some sort of interesting take going with them for me to have uh for me to have entertainment by them yes one thing that the two films have in common is that they're not awful uh, the <laughs> biographical films, let's just get into it. Biographical films are deeply flawed by their nature because they have as their purpose, um, the, a person has to be important enough to deserve a film about them, right? Uh-huh. Like the kind of award to have a film made about your life. So uh, the film itself responds with a kind of self-importance where their job is to make the person in the film important. Right. <laughs> so, every, you know, whether it's a, whatever movie it is, you really have to find, I don't want to talk trash about any particular movie, but they always have to have those scenes where they're like, don't you understand? You're the greatest artist of your generation. Like, <laughs> only other people would come out, your films, your, your work will be so valuable someday. You're just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> why this person is important and so it gets into a kind of hagiography and i don't mean that like uh, that they make the person perfect but that they do have to do an exercise in myth making so i mean okay i have a little i have a little story that's sort of vaguely connected in my youth working as a screenwriter i was briefly briefly involved with developing a movie that never got anywhere close to being made about the life of louis armstrong Uh, but it was fun to take the meeting because i'm a big fan obviously and um 
I went in thinking about, you know, the period of uh, Armstrong's life that's covered in his first book, Satchmo, or the book that covers the first part of his life about who he was before he became famous, because essentially after an artist becomes famous, their life is slightly less interesting um, because it has a sort of commonality to, you know, what successful people deal with. Um, but I realized that the people I was talking to were much more interested in things like, when did he start using the handkerchief? <laughs> I was like, what? They're like, you know how he's always using that handkerchief? And, I, I, and all of a sudden it's like, it's like a, it's like one of Kipling's just so stories where you're like, and that's how he, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that and that's the day that Dizzy Gillespie sat on his trumpet. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to find some way to um, show how somebody becomes important. Like the the movie and the story is really uh, in servitude to the purpose of making the person. Instead of when yeah. you're lucky, a, a person's life gives you the elements to make a film. And what these two films have in common is that the filmmakers are so strong intellectually. Um, and with such tremendous talent that they were really making the film for themselves more than they were to pay tribute to the person in them. Yes, there's that. They they also share a commonality, which is that they don't really rate the the primacy of text very highly. So they're very very they they really are rate that low. Peter Greenway is very vocal about it. So in, in problems that things that you just said there's a there's an odd contradiction which is that it is correct that the, the image has the last word so people are going about lewis armstrong and the trumpet as he would put it but at the same time uh the way people want to know things is as, 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 as though they're reading a book on a film and neither of these directors really much care for that so it's it that's the my last thought about Louis Armstrong is if somebody was making a biography a biographical film about Louis armstrong i just guarantee the third act climax would be about Hello, Dolly. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because it would be about how, like, getting a number one single and defeating the Beatles, and right? <laughs> that that would be the great victory. Oh, yeah, that would be it. Like, exactly. Structurally like, fits it. Um, the big, so the victory. Is I had not, uh, to be perfectly frank, I had not, I saw a lot of Peter Greenway when I was younger. He had a real glory period in the 80s and 90s. Mm. And I kind of moved away a little bit. I know you've always stayed with him. I, um, I really enjoyed the movie, although I have to admit, you and I share love of another film about Rembrandt, the Charles yes. Lawton film, the yes. director of Alexander Corda, which is a great movie from the 1930s. Yeah. And it does have that same thing as all the other ones. Rembrandt, how can a man only paint his wife? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Rembrandt has to like, oh, let me explain myself to you. Right? Yeah. Um, so the Greenaway film is talking, but why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, Peter Greenaway, perhaps what we think of as a signature style and what this movie is about. Well, Peter Greenaway is a guy who uh, he makes very interesting movies, but I think he gets some he he gets somewhat of a bad rap in his, in the world of 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 people who demand a certain kind of very obvious comprehensibility instead of saturation in a world, and so uh, so where you know he's complicated. They're, they're like Ken Russell, they're they're people that are that went through art schools and stuff like that, and have a very have a very um, interesting relationship with with uh, images and history, and being able to contain both at once by you know by by a kind of you know complex overlays and reiteration things like that that happen visually. Uh, 
uh, Peter Greenaway is from England, like we said, uh, you know, and uh, and I guess he wanted to be a painter more than a film person. He still is still he still is that way. Uh, and um, unlike Ken Russell, he's still alive. And, uh, you know, he's a little bit younger. Ken Russell is a 1927 person. Peter Greenaway is born in the 30s. So, you know, late 30s. So uh, that kind of thing. And uh, um uh, what, what else can I say? I mean, he's famous. His most famous movie, of course, is The Cook, The Thief's Wife and Her Lover, which was which turned out to be massive. Um, and uh, I mean, it's over 30 years old now. You think? Over 30 yeah. years. Yeah. But it's very successful. But, you know, I mean, he made he's made great a lot of great movies. I mean, I mean, the early ones are famous that in two noughts are, are, and, and the Draftsman's Contract, probably the Draftsman's Contract is his other signature movie. But I mean, I watched the pillow book again the other day just for just for kicks. And it's so beautiful really basically it's shot beautifully and and, and mm. looks easy gorgeous for the eyes and his movies are like that but he's always taking on uh big projects he's a person who feels that film is dead currently he's one of these people who is you right. know cinema is over and <laughs> you know he's and he's a and he's a person who's really fine you know, that's okay you know painting's over too that's why it's so interesting I, i'm not sure he disagrees but you know he's you know he's definitely uh it, it's definitely He's 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 definitely outspoken and 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 fine with declarations, you know, very large scale declarations. He's one of those kind of characters. Well, and, just to, the one thing I think is missing from your characterization for the completely uninitiated who might be listening to this is that, you know, starting with the draftsman's contract, which is a film told from the perspective of a draftsman, a person who literally would take out his like in the 18th century, he would take his frame out and he would have to draw in minute detail something so it was basically about somebody making a filling a frame and then belly of an architect is also about somebody sort of imposing structure yeah Cooking so he white printer lover is very uh, i don't want to say manner that makes it sound like a, a putting it down a very um rigorous and rigid stylistic approach right with strong use of primary colors and like it's very much it's very artificial and so to the point that even now this film, which is about the Rembrandt painting, the night watch. So it's really built around this one image that we see still, we see it moving and it's really very much shot clearly on a stage where all the characters are sort of, it's, it's like a, it's a very theatrical approach to cinema in the sense that all the characters are sort of intermingling in these spaces. It doesn't have that thing where they have to like, muddy up two blocks of pollen so that it looks like you're really it, do, it doesn't feel like you've gone back in time it's very much like um you're entering a painting yeah well because he's about the painting i mean the cook thief is a wife and a lover is also based on on a few paintings i mean the, the look of it and everything you know that yeah. you know he, he runs a certain thing with paintings there and really his uh, the things you brought up are really relevant because he feels that that the main uh, from my understanding from interviews, he feels that the main thing that is inescapable, although those art forms we said are dead, uh, they, he feels that he feels that architecture is not. And that is the main thing that we're that has always been around for all of us. And so in a lot of ways, you're seeing uh, and, and, and the thing about frames, whether or not our frames are our are, are, are primary necessity, necessity or what are we looking at? And also the artificial artificiality of being you know, having to be stuck in cinema to watch cinema, you know, I mean, all, all kinds of things that he's questioning. But I think the important thing about it, like he has things that are in this film and the Cook of the People's Way, but there are a number, of, a number of things you're watching, even though it looks like it's in a room and it's a theater. If you watch the camera, the camera tends to move laterally into these scenes or have scenes move laterally into the camera from one or another side. 
I know there's one scene where he pulls back and I'm like, what's going on? Did you, <laughs> were you sick that day? Like who moved the camera that way? It's not yeah. at all. It right. literally feels like you're in a totally different movie for doing this camera move that's very, very common. But he doesn't go in or out. He only goes from side to side. Side to side. It's a very interesting look, right? Because, But at the same time, that's like moving across a gallery, you know, or, or, or switching, yeah. switching across painting. And I think the other thing that's intriguing about um, about just before we really cover the movie here is there's, a, there's another sort of look to it, which, you know, you would have spotted in the uh, in the. Um, in his interviews too, which is that, uh, which is that he feels like film really started in that period when they had the invention of artificial light. Now this is very peculiar. So you have a really, a very strident kind of assertion there, which is the, which is the beginning of film is actually in Rembrandt's time period. And it's because of artificial light. And since film is really the, the development of, a, of an art form based around artificial life, light, that it really is a, that's a very interesting viewpoint, really, you know, and that, 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 that you know, that. Uh, uh, I mean, I would agree. He's also like, uh, I want to say Greenway is a polymath, but I don't know if that's true. He just seems to know a tremendous amount about the subjects that interest him. He does research. And, and um, you can probably just see more of the iceberg. It seems like there's a lot of people where the films are. I don't want to say mysterious or cryptic. I mean, eventually we're going to have to say. Well, let's just jump right into it. The thing about night watching is that, well, listen, almost every film about a visual artist, in my opinion, is about um, capitalism because they have to find conflict for there to be a story. Mm -hmm. And there are people like, you know, Pablo Picasso who are extraordinarily successful at every part of their life. Um, and it makes them sort of less interesting because they don't have that pushback. Whereas anybody who's having conflict or struggle as an artist against you know, the forces that either keep them down or hold them up, which in the case of visual artists are almost always like the gallery world or clients or their poverty. Every once in a while you get lucky and you have somebody with mental illness and that's good too. Yeah. But um, it, in the case of uh, the Rembrandt film, it's about, it basically takes the idea that his most famous painting, and by the way, with the touch of self-importance, right? It's, the, um, it's one of the, it's his most famous painting. And he says it's um, that there's a murder mystery, right? Because there's um, a conspiracy embedded in it. And so the film is about the conflicts involved in making a painting. So it's one of those things that you like, Jonathan, because you've run an orchestra, about how to get all these forces together and in alignment to achieve a single vision. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it is that. I, I think... The way I would want to say this for our listeners here is I, I will give I'll give I'll just give a moment, a, a moment of lip service to the to the to the bio part of the biopic here and uh, and and say that as far as what's going on with Rembrandt, the very famous Rembrandt painter, who, of course, is famous for his endless amounts of self-portraits and stuff, is that we're the the movie is centering around uh, Rembrandt is there Rembrandt's life was really a very much a rise and then a very uh, he was very successful for a while and then he be he was becoming he became very unsuccessful and so the movie one of the one of the deals and i'm saying this because of what you said about about um his uh relationship with the economics of of, of sustaining himself is that he was doing very well until this painting shows up and then and then there's a sudden there's there's a movement into into rembrandt's decline into poverty 
and so this movie is, deals with the sort of transitional events in a way into his, you know, maybe perhaps asserting what caused him to suddenly become unsuccessful after being one of the most successful painters ever within his lifetime. Right. It's like that story about, um, there's an RKO 281, that film that's about the relationship between Orson Welles and William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. There's this, you know, premise that Orson Welles' career went downhill after Citizen Kane, and that's a long time to be going downhill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, had everything to do with that he picked on the wrong person for his uh -huh. film, and that yeah. if he hadn't picked on somebody so iconic and important, he yeah. would have had a better run of it. I'm not sure I agree with that, but you can't tell a story without finding some conflict. And yeah. Orson Welles just making Citizen Kane and it being great mm -hmm. is not inherently dramatic. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the choices. I know that you love... Um, Greenaway's not, he doesn't make star vehicles per se, although there are some pretty wonderful actors in his movies. Tell me um, why you love the casting of Martin Freeman so much as Rembrandt. <laughs> because Martin Freeman really reminds me of, uh, I've said this, I, I keep thinking this, you know, Harvey Keitel is a very interesting American actor. And as much as I'm not sure that he's ever anything other than the guy that he is, it's not like watching Daniel Day-Lewis or something where he totally becomes somebody completely different. It's basically right. like, you have a great actor. It, it, there's something great about him without him really going all the way. He's still doing Harvey Keitel. Now, he's a great position. Well, Martin Freeman is sort of like this. It really doesn't matter what you give him. He's that he's that he's that chap. Right. So it doesn't matter if it's Bilbo Baggins or The Office or Dr. Watson or whatever the hell. He, whatever the hell he, yeah. you, know, I, you know, now I'm, I, I, it's so funny. Every part Martin Freeman has played has been played by somebody else. So he originates that role in The Office, and then John Krasinski is kind of more famous now for having played the part. He played yeah. Bilbo Baggins after <laughs> Ian Holm played Bilbo, right? Yeah. And then he's in the remake of A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> right. You know, and, I mean, and even even the character created in the Fargo first season of Fargo miniseries, which is astonishing, he's very much playing a character who is inspired by, you know, the vocal rhythms of William H Macy. So he's just somebody who's um. He's a he's a great uh, vehicle. I mean, I like his performance in this. I also oh, think, yeah, you know, I I'm a sucker for Charles Lawton. I think we see these sort of. Um, oh yeah, but Ch Charles but, Lawton is so you know. Uh, but also, you know, Rembrandt, like Vincent Van Gogh, like he painted himself a lot. So we have a really strong picture of what Rembrandt is supposed to look like. Yes, then there's certainly a matter of. I mean, the, the movie. A lot of. I mean, he. Uh, Greenaway's movies have a, have both telescopic features and kaleidoscopic features. So in some in some way, he's trying to show the fact that you put people in these paintings, and the paintings take on a life of their own, regardless of who the people are. So in a lot of ways, the presentations of Martin Freeman walking around like that, whether or not his character, his personality actually fits in them, goes along with whether or not Rembrandt painted people who weren't actually the people. You know, and I, you see what I mean. It's a very interesting thing, but but I think also the, the ordinariness of Martin Freeman being uh, of, of the representation of of, of uh, Rembrandt being just an ordinary guy. So he didn't have to be overacted in this movie. I mean, Charles Lawton's movie. He's very. It's yeah. It's Charles Lawton. So Charles Lawton's very stately and you know, and classical actorly and and incredibly you know, it, it drawing you in into this you know 
this massive act. And in this particular Listen, every Carol Vaughn movie. So when we were young, you remember Jonathan, 25 years ago, <laughs> yeah. we got together. It must have been for my birthday and had a Charles Lawton film festival. We watched four Charles Lawton movies. <laughs> right. And that's how we figured out that every Charles Lawton movie has to stop for him to recite the Gettysburg Address. So that every one of them has to, he has to stop and do a monologue, right? So yeah. in the Rembrandt movie, he talks about, you know, Someone's like, how come you can only paint your wife, the scene I love so much? And he talks about the first, you know, the first Saskia. Yeah. And, and he goes on for about two minutes. And so um, I don't mean to get on a tangent about Charles Lawton, but uh, he, you know, made a, he made a living off of that voice. And so okay, well, I'll every, every time it. you used him. So yeah. that's what we sort of expect from Rembrandt. Whereas like Martin Freeman, Let's face it, whether you're talking about Bilbo Baggins or Arthur Dent in Hitchhiker's Guide or the guy in the office or the guy in Fargo, he almost always plays characters who are unassuming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, um, you wouldn't, there aren't a lot of parts that you would say, Martin Freeman or Charles Lawton, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's a tremendous straight man. He's a lot of things. And so you sort of place him at the center of this gigantic movie. Yeah. Uh, but unlike most biopics or whatever you want to call them. This is not a movie that really works in close-up very often. Uh, Peter Greenaway loves wide shots. He loves yeah. large composed frames, which I think yeah. shows the affinity for the subject, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That, and it's lit beautifully. It's lit. So it's lit like a Rembrandt painting. It's really magnificent. Yeah. Well, listen, the, I feel like the segue I want to make is that Peter Greenaway is really a cryptographer in the sense that he really does encode a lot of information and a lot of ideas inside the style of his work mm -hmm. and this film is really special you loan me the dvd and it comes with the companion dvd talk about that yeah the companion film where he made a film about how to watch this film <laughs> yeah right so yeah. he made, and it's almost as if you know the night watching is a narrative film uh that sort of goes in an order about getting the job and doing this painting and which was a wide proscenium which he sort of put a tableau of many people in there and had to sort of you know decorate his way and really had a lot that he had to do to get his vision through um with conflict oh goody but then it seems like the documentary i liked it even more one because um he's in it so peter greenaway who i really didn't i wouldn't have recognized him walking down the street or recognized his voice uh, but he uses this picture-in-picture -picture style that's a very, very Greenaway signature that he loves not only having the frame of the film, but also frames and side frames. Yeah. I remember seeing his film Prospero's books and how he really adapted to all this video technology and filmmaking, which was kind of early for that kind of thing. Mm. He really loves putting a lot of... A lot of people like to put stimulating images together as a way that sort of overwhelms the audience with visuals. He's really trying to get you to use your whole brain. Yeah. So the premise of Rembrandt's Jacques is that people don't know how to watch. <laughs> yeah. They don't know how to look and they don't know how to watch. Yeah. And so the film has, you know, what is it, like 33 aspects of the painting that you need to understand. And I loved it, even though it really is like... Um, you know, it's like uh, Greenway's an old man, and his companion film is an essay, like Agnes Varda, who made those films when she was older, and like Jean-Luc Godard makes, where they really are, they really are 
a biopic essentially writes itself. You can pretty much say, oh, who are we doing? Muhammad Ali? Okay, who, who are we going to do? All right, what are they famous for? Well, let's figure out how to hit all of the beats of their life in a way that congratulates the audience and, you know, gives them essentially the, you know, high school textbook version of a person's life. Whereas yeah. the, you, in watching these two films, you learn a lot. And at the end, you still feel like there's so much more to know. Well, yeah, I think I think there's an interesting point that you brought up there, which is let's let's get back to the the, the odd thing about the biopic. I will I want to point, do want to point this out also for the audience who still may be trying to work out whether this movie is about Rembrandt or what is it with the painting. It's there's a thing with in in the Dutch period in that Dutch period the rise the rise of of, of, of the power of, the, of 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 Holland is that uh, um, they they had these you know becoming stately and retiring uh, militias that wanted large paintings made of themselves. And so uh, I'm just putting this as an aside for the listeners that essentially the, the basic deal of this painting is it's about a certain militia that, uh, that, that commissioned Rembrandt to do a painting. And, and Peter Greenaway's assertion is that there was there's a murder that's depicted and outed in the painting and uh, and it's an audacious comment because, as Peter Greenway puts it in Jack Hughes in the next thing, it's a, it's it's an assertion of his that no one else has said. So it's not common in the art history circles. You're not even seeing something that is like a description of an art history theory. It's his theory that he he points out can't be disproved. Very interesting piece of fiction. So and but I will say this that it's it really differs from your average biopic that you just described, like Muhammad Ali thing or one of those things. And, and as much as those things are designed to inspire somewhat in make you inspired by the person to feel like you're inspired to do something because they did something great. You will not come away in any way out of this by thinking, I wish I could be like Rembrandt. <laughs> and, and, and this is something that doesn't should that, that most, most biopics, uh, modern ones or biopics, uh, bio, I like biopic. It sounds better. I come out of my mouth, but, uh, but, uh, but, uh, they don't, um, you know, you're supposed to be inspired by the person. I don't think in this particular case you're really much supposed to be inspired by Rembrandt. You're, you recognize the fact that he's extremely talented and really great, yeah. but heavily flawed. Although you may want to have as much sex as he's having with the kind of people that he is. <laughs> right. Either there. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to find a painting movie that doesn't have a lot of sex in it because I feel like that's just something that's like connected. Maybe or a Greenaway movie. Greenaway's not going to have a movie without a lot of sex. you got to have a lot of sex. It's... There's certainly going to be a lot of the um, unadorned human form. Absolutely. He does like to get people just... He loves, like, the naked person next to the person and, like, plate. You know, yeah. You know what I mean? yeah. You really accentuate that aspect of it. Full um, male nudity, which you don't see that much. You know, men just completely... Yeah. You know, I listen. You're giving me the perfect segue to Ken Russell. But before we do, let's. I always want to uh, touch on the music. What did you think about the music in this film? Oh, I thought it was really, uh, really fantastic and interesting. And I looked up the guy that did it. You know, it's funny because I'm I'm used to thinking of Michael Nyman and stuff like that as being as being Peter Greenway's people, go to people for for music. And uh, in a way, I think what I enjoyed about it is the way in which it was. Not really. It was neither modern nor particularly Baroque, which is that what that period was. It was sort of a, a you know, it 
and that it it phased in and out in an interesting way. I mean, it was a lot of it was was interstitial. You know, it was used in a, more of an interstitial way rather than a dramatizing way, like where you're supposed to sit there and have your emotions turned around by how the music is implemented in the scene. There wasn't much of that, uh, which I appreciate a lot of times because I don't uh, the ways the ways that people use music to jerk your emotions around is just so obvious and and really, you know. In, in a way, it's a cheap shot. You're, it's almost like we're not making it here on the visual end. Could you please throw in some music? Certainly, that's the way Bernard Herman felt. Yeah, his job. You know, I call that I call that catharsis insurance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and, you know, that's what. But that's the thing about music and film, like uh, Spider Man. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> you can feel anything if you want. Therefore, be careful. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't rely on that. It, so uh, I think it just used it in as much as it was clever and kind of deep. And uh, I guess it's what I can't remember the guy's name. Is, it's sort of Eastern European composer uh, who's done a lot of interesting other kinds of music work, too. He's not just a film guy. And, uh, you know, he has his own records doing interesting stuff. I, I checked it out. And, uh, and uh, I, you know, I thought that that was all... Uh, all pretty interesting uh you know he definitely kept the volume up it wasn't like it was sitting there in the background i mean it was real it was yeah. really film music it was sitting there like you know whoop here's the music it was always it was always real clear like now the music's coming in and i like that too you know so listen let's um segue over to my film i i think i knew in the back of my mind when i was saying pick a film about a visual artist that i could have said painter and that would have given me a lot of choices and I have a favorite film that's a fictional film about a paint that's a non-biographical fictional story, but that's for another time. I, uh, I've always remembered Savage Messiah fondly since I saw it for the first time back in the eighties. Ken Russell, um, was a famous iconic and influential filmmaker for quite a time. He's British. He started making films from the BBC in the sixties, many of which were biographical about classical composers like, mm -hmm. Elgar, there's a bar talk film, there's a lot of that stuff. Um, and he was really interested in biographies and he made a lot of them, um, including he made one about Tchaikovsky, The Music Lovers, he made one about Mahler, he made uh, uh, a very odd movie uh, about Franz Liszt called Listomania starring Roger Daltrey, which is clearly uh, very similar to the Who's movie Tommy, which Ken Russell also directed. But he made a big splash around 1970 with a D.H. Lawrence adaptation of Women in Love, yeah. which is famous for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, that's less than 10 years after the Lady Chatterley trial. So um, if I'm not mistaken, meaning that D.H. Lawrence was already kind of like a hot topic author. The film has notorious male nudity. Uh, there's a male wrestling scene with Oliver Reed and uh, uh Alan Bates. Anyway, um, but it's a wonderful movie. So he spent a lot of his career making, um, he made some D.H. Lawrence films, mm -hmm. and he made a lot of films about composers and real people that he made in his own very elaborate style. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and, uh, and then he really made some real outrageously almost campy movies like Gothic, which is about, you know, right. Mary Shelley and I love it. I mean, he, uh, my favorite film of his might actually be Lair of the White Worm. <laughs> the Worm. With the, or, with certainly the in the top five. Uh, but I'm sorry, because I'm forgetting his masterpiece. His masterpiece is called The Devils. Devils. It's based on a novel by Aldous Huxley. And it is a truly, truly blasphemous movie. And I mean that in the best sense. But it's really hard to find a film that 
um, disturbs, not because of, say, jump scares or gothic horror. Or well, there's also the movie that got almost almost uh, more coverage than everything is Tommy. I think it was Altered States, which was a real big. Altered story. States is an interesting story, and it's um, it's like a Ken Russell is a director's director, by which I mean he did take some screenwriting credits, but he wasn't known as a writer director, and his directorial flourish was really the last word. I can't, you know, a, a quick aside about Altered States. You know, that was written by Padachevsky who had won three Academy Awards for screenwriting and had not only the possessory credit, which is almost impossible to get as a screenwriter, you know, Shakespeare doesn't have it. <laughs> and uh, then it says like a film by Patty Chayefsky. Um, and so he had final cut in the sense that when Ken Russell was hired to direct Altered States, I think he maybe didn't quite understand what it meant that he wasn't allowed to change a word of the dialogue. Uh -huh. And so there was this sort of struggle between the two of them in which Ken Russell would take scenes he didn't like and he would have William Hurt like eating a sandwich or something. <laughs> so he <laughs> muffled the dialogue. <laughs> the movie turned out really, really good. Um, but uh, let me go back to The Devils, which is, like I said, a movie that's really uh, an aggressively blasphemous film about uh, demonic possession, sorry, uh, diabolical possession in the Middle Ages. Um, that is... Uh, uh, very contemporary in its way, and then really kind of artificial in the sense that you wouldn't, you're not walking into history, you're walking into an artificial version of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I mention it because the production designer of The Devils is Derek Jarman, who ended up becoming a very famous filmmaker in the 80s. Absolutely. And yeah. so Derek Jarman is also the key to Savage Messiah. Okay. After all these other movies I saw when I was young, I was like, I know who Tchaikovsky is, I know who Mahler is, I know who Franz Liszt is, I know who The Who is, I know who D.H. Lawrence is. What is this film? First of all, nobody makes films about sculptors. Everybody makes films about painters. And who is this guy, Henri Gaudier Breschka? I thought I was supposed to know who he was because he was a famous, I thought he was supposed, if you were gonna get a film made about you, you were supposed to be Rodin or I don't know, Henry Moore or the other people. And so I, I would probably go so far as to say, I'm not an art historian, that he's not that famous compared to those other people. Right. And then as I understand it, I know you've done your research too, Ken Russell was a fan of this book called Savage Messiah that was basically made from the correspondence between Henri Godier, this teenage, you know, his work is principally between 18 and 23. He dies at age 23. And his relationship with a woman about twice his age, um, Sophie Breshka, who, uh, and the relationship between the two of them, which is sort of interesting and charged and not a traditional one, creates the correspondence that tells the story of his life. So it's not so much that there is a mythology about the guy that needs to be reinforced or needs to be explained or even dramatized. It's really that he was he found the character interesting. You know, uh, here's another one that's not a biographical film per se, but Amadeus. I always use it as an example. Uh -huh. It just takes a period of his life that we would find interesting and dramatic and makes that the story. So your Rembrandt movie is not about Rembrandt's entire life because it would be pretty weak tea if it were. Yeah. It's the conflict relating to Night Watching, which is to the Night Watch, which is fantastic. And so this one takes, I mean, the guy didn't have a long life, but it really takes a period of it and makes it about a relationship with another person in the way that like, you know, Jackson Pollock is best seen in a movie through his marriage, that kind of a thing. Um, so 
you learn a little bit about this guy, but most importantly, you get a really exuberant, exuberant look at the life of a Bohemian artist. And that's something I really love. It has Ken Russell's signature style of, you know, swooping camera moves, very subjective camera. Um, the, the, the storytelling is really broad. Like it takes this idea of, you know, when a young artist needs to express what he passionately stands for. In this movie, he jumps on top of a kind of boring nude sculpture and complains that there aren't any holes in it. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> like, you know what I mean? That he's really, um, he's a passionate young man. I'm not really doing a good job explaining to you the experience of what it'd be like watching it. Now you had not seen it, right? I hadn't seen that one, no, but I, yeah, of course I've seen a lot of Ken Russell movies, and I mean, I I, I really loved it. I, w I will say it, 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 this is, I think, where you can go with this, is that Ken Russell is an absolute monster size master at, at giving a kind of uh, outward expression to, to perhaps what the kind of in, inspired madness is that goes on it, it, for, for artists that he covers like what there's a point he's very fine with going into a kind of externalized madness that depicts what life is internally for these people and this is common across these things and in a way it's very inspiring because it, what you see externally put out is these these outrageous behaviors everywhere stuff that you wouldn't normally see and this and, and in a way it's inspiring it gives you a feeling of like Wow, total freedom. Now, of course, amidst that, you get you get their the, the, you know the incredible bummer of it coming in contact with with this with its contemporary society, and that's true for all of his movies, whether it's Tommy or or uh, you know or the or the Mahler movement movie or any of his movies. You're seeing what what happens when this kind of mind with this with this kind of expression has to has to manage that in line with contemporary society that's going on around him and in a way it's very inspiring like you feel energized from watching it like i want to behave like that but at the same time you're watching the absolute simultaneous beatdown of it by every by, by by the culture in which in which that person happens to exist i think it's an incredible way to show things you know and and at the same time make a commentary on exactly somebody who is vaguely successful or interesting to whether it's the elites or the masses is simultaneously getting totally consumed by those people getting eaten alive by them you know it's it's one of it's one of his really great maneuvers you know uh um and i think in this movie you know really had that i i was you know it's in it's an interesting thing too it has i mean dorothy tootin and and uh helen mirren like two massive yeah. actors on the screen they're both you know you know, they're both dame actresses now. <laughs> and, yeah, right. But Dark wasn't famous. You know, I, I feel like I, I did not know until I did my digging that this was a film that nobody wanted him to make. And I always think like, oh, you had success making Women in Love, so they give you a couple of cracks at making the films you want to make. And then if you fail, you end up in movie jail. And then the Who asks you to make Tommy, and then you get out of jail, and then you make some flops and you go back to jail and that's how it works. But this was a movie he, nobody was asking for because of course this guy was not a famous sculptor. There is no, it's not an obvious moral tale. You can't tell at the end whether you want to be him or not him. Like yeah. he doesn't make moral decisions that make him either a hero or a villain. Hold on. Self-financed, self of course. Right. So he put up the money himself to make it. Sorry, we're going to have to edit out the stuff with the dog. It's all right. Um, 
that he self-financed in the sense that after finding out that nobody wanted to make it, he took the money he had and made it himself. And so that's probably why there aren't a lot of big famous people in Dorothy Tudor was a stage actress. I'm sorry. It really bothers me when he's barking. So I can't talk while he's barking. In a way, she's not, I'm just saying she's not minor. If you were, if you don't, if you were, you know, I mean, like, cause I grew up in England, of course, but, but you know, but, the, but, uh, but nobody who went to the movies knew who she was. That's yeah, what I, 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 I that's like the British stage actress. So sorry. I literally cannot, I can't do it while he's doing it. Hold on. Sorry, it's a, a kind of a pet peeve. It's my fault for having this dog here, but during nap time, he doesn't have anywhere else to go. So um, that he did this movie probably on a kind of shoestring so that Helen Mirren, who was still Helen Mirren, hadn't been in a lot of films by then. Oh, no. I, I think there's a lot of people who participated. He cast an unknown actor, really, as Henri Godier. Yeah. And, um, and I think Derek Jarman is probably the secret weapon of them all because it's a film that sort of, starts off taking place in recognizable European spaces. But then when he falls in with this group of sort of more avant-garde artists, you look like you're, they go to this nightclub that looks like the color version of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari with these like broad primary red, blue lines. You know the scene I'm talking about, yeah. right? Uh, and the costuming becomes broader and stranger. And then once you get into the art world, they all seem like kind of, um, you're sort of entering this expressionistic world. I thought it was really, really colorful and fantastic. Um, well, they were all part of a radical group of artists at the time. People making it, Derek Jarman and him and all that stuff. Right, so you see that attraction and that they just wanted to tell a story that they found in this life. I just think it's really wonderful. And I think, mm. and the film is a little bit like the artist who died in World War One. The film has a really kind of, a, um, has a very emotional ending, which you don't expect because the film is, uh, I mean, it's, it's warm, you know, there's a, if you put these two as a double feature with each other, there's a kind of fire and ice because Greenaway is not, he's analytical in a kind of cool way. And whereas, you know, Ken Russell's films were always just swinging from the chandelier. Yeah. So you think that the story is of a sculptor who dies young and then he was only really rediscovered, I think much later. I don't think, Young, really the guy who wrote the book, the guy who wrote the book Savage Messiah, based on their correspondence, essentially inherited the papers and then found the story and published it. And so this film is the same way. The film is like uh, wasn't one of Ken Russell's big heads. I think it kind of he was a very prolific filmmaker, so I think it falls into the stack, sort of like with you know Robert Altman or something, where there mm. were so many films that some of them just kind of you could really be into Ken Russell and have seen 20 of his films and not know this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah and like, so, that, like that for me. I think I saw it once when I was younger and then in the nineties in the VHS era, I had to go to some fancy video store to find a copy of it. And then it was only recently reissued on Warner archives where you can get it, but there's, you know, not, it's not a particularly nice copy and there's no, you know, there's no feature ads. There's no nothing about the movie. It really just kind of stands as a kind of document. But I'm really, I'm really grateful that it exists. Um, now, um, Ken Russell is a, obviously uh, a real gourmand of classical music. And the soundtrack to Savage Messiah has a number of different composers in there. What did you think about the music um, supervision in the film? Uh, you know, I thought it was really good. I, you know, the thing about Ken Russell 
it's interesting because I was doing some more research on Ken Russell for this and uh, and uh, came across a really fun interview. Uh, there's apparently there's a, a, a BBC show, uh, radio show uh, called In the Psychiatrist Chair, or in the, I think it's called the Psychologist Chair or something. And it sort of has a psychologist interview these famous people. And there's one with Ken Russell. And I thought this was a really interesting thing. But, you know, apparently when he came back from... Uh, essentially a kind of marine service thing you know and he quit that and he was very depressed and sat in his house with his family trying to get him to do stuff and nothing really registered to him for a long time and he didn't have any urges and then apparently it was the radio started playing some piece of music i can't remember which one some classical piece of music which he it he had a response to so he went and bought it you know and so a lot of his impetus for things i think he's he's real driven by music you know and and, and the meaning of music and that so i think in a way it's sort of primary how it how it animates things uh, you know and and, and what it means and, and i think he's, he's close to that so i mean you know i really liked it i didn't think it was uh I, i'm not really sure that uh you know, what do we have there? There we do have a way in which the music comment is commenting. Uh, there is a way it doesn't do it while things are going on. But it, but again, it's not it's not really there to kind of make sure that you're getting the emotion that he wants while it's going on. But at a certain point, but in a certain way, the selections do describe mood uh, as when they when they show up. You know, in other words, you get a real you really get a real a real sense of mood and comparative mood it, much the way much the way that the Godard movie that we covered did so in the Godard mm -hmm. movie which had the Beethoven sections on it, it was real clear as it was going through what what the mood or the drive of the movie was by which sections of the quartet were being selected you know so I'd say it kind of functioned that way and that's I I like that as a function because it, it, it again like the other thing it sort of allows Music is a co-equal space, not not there to force particularly, uh, you know, where sound has a uh, a feature with image that, it, but not something where it's it's there to fo force the images to do anything, or the images are there to force the music to do something. They sort of, you know, they have a they have a way of translating each other's feel. Although, you know, I mean, I, you know, as I said, I think I think that the other interesting thing about Ken Russell, I think the thing in relation to these two movies is that you're dealing with two very very visual people ken russell goes through you know it should be pointed out was a big photographer major photographer before before the film thing you know and so his eye is is, is shocking on the on the he really understands images uh and and that's primal primary in the same way as in peter greenway's thing it's it's very much visually based because he's a painter and you know wanted to do that most of his life and all that so the, the, their training works that way so but i think at the same time as far as film goes once they're into the adventure of film i think you know they both because uh you know they're not a slave to the, they're, not, they're not a slave to the ordinary mores of how those things should be mixed let's say they can use it they can use it in a the, the art it's a, it's a very carefully selected artistic mixture or or it's or at least it's a freely it's a it's a free mixture it's not dictated by the by the norms of of, of film and, and sound practice so that's all i'll say that about it all right good well listen to wrap it up i feel like uh i haven't done the best job but if anybody out there who's listening to this who's like i've heard of ken russell and i haven't seen any of his movies why should i pick this one I would almost compare him to somebody like 
it's going to sound odd, but I'm going somewhere with it. Boz Lerman, who did, you know, Romeo and Juliet and the 3D Great Gatsby. It's just somebody who, like, goes big and wants to use every tool in the paint box to make you feel something, to give you, like, strong emotional reaction to the subject matter. What's different is that I think that, you know, Boz Lerman is an enormously commercial filmmaker who has this sense of, you know, what does he say in Moulin Rouge? Spectacular, spectacular. That like the show must go on and the, he uses all these tools the way a lot of filmmakers do now, purely to entertain. Whereas Ken Russell, who I think the most astonishing thing about him is that he was an A-list filmmaker for, you know, 10 years or so. Uh, because he really isn't happy unless he's disturbing the viewer in some way or other. He's always showing you a good time, but he's always in his fashion, but he's always trying to, um, I mean, shock in the best sense to try and confront you. His films are really confrontational and I really adore that about him. And I, I really took him when I was young and I remember when he passed away, I thought, I think it's William Wyler who said about the death of Ernst Lubitsch, how sad no more Ernst Lubitsch movies. I just think Ken Russell's one of those filmmakers that um, we won't see his like again. So I really, because we won't ever have the 70s again. There won't be all those um, sacred cows to be taken down. Um, but I really like it. I think you could, anybody who's interested could start with their Ken Russell, either at Women in Love or, or I mean, really just start with the Devils because you'll never be more messed up than after you watch that movie. And then if you want more, you've got this fantastic savage beside it. Or maybe start with Tommy. I'm not a big Who guy, but maybe Tommy's the way in for some people. Oh, yeah. Well, I love the Who. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I think I, I think one of the, one of the things about uh, um, about about Ken Russell is a lot of it's very fun. I mean, it has this campy surrealism that is really fantastic, you know. And really, the, the campy surrealism thing in his movies, or the sort of the sort of you know horror, the sort of horror with a purpose thing, is is uh, is um, maybe he uses kind of horror and sort of you know campy surrealism the way that the way the way the way that peter greenway uses sex but anyway it's really really fun and uh and and so there's that too i don't want people to think it's like stodgy stuff it's really a gas watching their films so you know absolutely well i hope you guys enjoy them yeah absolutely. all right good i think uh i think that's it for this time i'll see you next time i hope we don't wait so long before we do the next one i uh, hope not either let's try to get to it so all right man thanks a lot great talking to you yeah you too